0: And I'm so glad, so glad to be in the book of Acts today. And uh, over the next few weeks, the book of Acts is going to kind of direct us and guide us. So if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn to Acts chapter 1 today, beginning in verse 12. Last week, we began the Game Changer series. Now, that name lends itself to football stories, I have to tell you, even on Super Bowl Sunday. And I'm going to do my best to keep away from the football while I'm talking about the more more important things of the Bible. But we will get to it at some point today. Please stand with me as we read beginning in verse 12 of Acts chapter 1, where the disciples have now moved to the upper room where they are obeying what Jesus said in verses 4, 5, 8 and following. And they are literally, after realizing Jesus is resurrected from the dead, and after he's given them orders, they are waiting for something incredibly powerful, something that the Father has promised. And we'll look at that today as we begin reading in about verse number 12. The Bible says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. A Sabbath day's journey is about three-fifths of a mile, so it's not far. to get many steps in that day. They just went a short period of place away from where they were. Verse 13, when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas, the son of James. These all with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now, when you read the book of Acts, as we started last week, you'll know right away it's about Jesus. It's a book about Jesus. Luke is the author. He's written the gospel of Luke. Verse 1 says, I, I written before, I wrote before Theophilus, so you would know everything that Jesus began to say and do. And so now he's writing about what Jesus continues to do through the church. So This book is about Jesus, but it's also about the church, but what we sometimes forget is it's about you. It's about you and your prayer life and what you're invited into. Father, today I'm going to ask you that you would just open our eyes by the power of your Holy Spirit to what the Scripture says about you, about us, about the Holy Spirit in our lives, about the power of prayer. Father, I, I pray that as we leave today, in just a few moments that we will want to pray. We will want to walk with you in prayer and see the power that prayer has in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name Oh all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Please be seated if you would. Game-changing prayer. You know, the key action in the phrase we looked at, verses 12, 13, and 14, key action here, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. They were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Not hard to find the center point of these three verses here because as they gather in that upper room, they have no other agenda, no other idea of what's going to happen, no other plan, but they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. They're in this upper room, and the upper room uh, in most houses in that day and time was an open room. It was built on top of the individual small rooms that you might see in a normal house, a bedroom here, a kitchen here, another bedroom over here so all these all these walled rooms on the bottom side Uh, had as a ceiling and as the floor of the second story, just an open space. And there they gathered to have meetings. There they gathered to uh, talk. Often they ate in the upper room. And if you remember the upper room, when Jesus sent his disciples up there for that last supper, you're thinking about maybe the very same place where they were gathered. So they're in the upper room. Now, this is just after Jesus has died, been buried, risen again from the dead. He's appeared to them, and now they're kind of, by themselves. So, for the first time, the disciples don't have the boldness they had before when Jesus was standing in their midst, Jesus who could do anything, Jesus who could walk on water, Jesus who could raise the dead, Jesus who could make the blind see and the lame walk, Jesus who could cast demons out. He's not there. And if you put yourself in the disciples' shoes, there's some things you're going to be thinking about. You're going to be frightened because this man you followed for three years died. He rose again, which is obviously incredible and amazing and supernatural. But now they don't see him anymore because he's just ascended to go to the father and they feel in a sense very much alone. So they're gathering with other frightened followers. They're about to make some key decisions because Judas betrayed Jesus and they need another one to come alongside them. That's what the next text is about. They are, uh, they're about to face a hostile culture that does not believe that Jesus really rose from the dead because not all saw. And they're about to bring the good news of the gospel to people that are really not interested in hearing it just yet. Kind of sounds like today if you ask me. We're sometimes afraid. We face a hostile culture. Not everybody believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we in the church feel very, very much Alone, So they're in that frame of mind. So they have that frame of mind, and yet they do what Jesus said to do, and they go to the upper room, and they're going to pray, and it's going to change their lives. Let me make a statement that will be echoed all the way through our message today. And here's the statement, game-changing prayer is prayer that causes us to wait on, depend upon, and confidently move in the Spirit's power. Game-changing prayer, the kind of prayer that changes the game of your life. It's prayer that causes us to wait on God, that causes us to depend on God, that that helps us confidently move in the Spirit's power no matter what it is we're called to do or what challenges we face. So let's see how it unfolds here and let's let this impact us the way it impacted them. And if we do that, we're gonna experience some great things. So first of all, as we look at the text, notice what they were praying for. They were praying for the power and the presence of Jesus. Now, anytime you look at a text of Scripture, and we did that, we read 12, 13, and 14, it's impacted by the context because we know that context is king. Say that with me if you would. Context is king. That means if you want to know what a verse means, look at everything around that one verse. It helps you understand what they're waiting for. So they're up in verse 14, waiting uh, in the upper room. Verses 12 and 13 says they're obeying what Jesus said to do, and they're praying. What are they praying about? Context helps us here. If you go back to verse 4 and 5, the immediate context says, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So they're waiting for that power, and they're waiting for the presence of Jesus That'll be exhibited in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about today and a little bit more. They are told to go to Jerusalem and wait. Kind of an oxymoron. Go. Wait. But what Jesus is saying is go to one place and just stop and wait for me to fulfill what I promised I'm going to fulfill. And Jesus goes further and says, wait for what the Father promised and what you heard of from me. And it's an obvious reference with verses 4 and 5, with a reminder in verse 8 as well that the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on them with power, that this is a waiting moment where they are going to receive the Holy Spirit for the first time in their lives. And you've got to wonder what they're thinking when Jesus says, go and wait. The Father has promised, the Spirit is going to come. And as they thought back to those things that Jesus said, as they were reminded about what he said to them, they began to realize what's about to happen. I want to remind you of what they were reminding each other about. I don't know about you, but if I do something on Tuesday and I sleep a few days, I don't even remember what I did on Tuesday. If someone says something important to me three weeks ago, then I may not remember it today. Now, I know Jesus is different than somebody, but the reality is these disciples have been through it, man. They've been through it. Their leader, has been taken from them in the garden of Gethsemane. He's been scourged, he's been beaten, he's been on trial. He was crucified. He rose from the dead on the third day. I mean, they've had a week, a week in which you could forget easily some of the other things that happened before. and now they're in this upper room, because, well, what was it Jesus was saying to us? And they remember some things that He said to them. In John chapter 14, verse 12, that's one of the verses that I would be remembering. Of course, in that time, it wasn't in a verse, chapter 14 and verse 12, but it was something Jesus literally spoke to them. And if you read John 14, verse 12, you'll see what Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. Now, that's almost unbelievable. He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. Can you imagine Peter and James and John who did nothing before they started following Jesus but fish for fish, and they hear the words of Jesus saying, if you believe me, the works that I've done, raising the dead, healing the blind, being able to cast out demons, the things that I've done, he will do. The one who follows me will do in an even greater way. Notice the next part of that line. Jesus also says, in greater works than these, he will do. Why? Because I go to the Father. Now that just doesn't make sense to the average disciple. It makes not make sense to me if I were standing there. You mean you're leaving, you're the source of power, you're the one who is the God, the son, you're leaving and we're gonna do greater things? How's that gonna work? I mean, that's a legitimate question, right? How's it gonna work when you're gone, we weren't doing these great things before you came and you say we're gonna be doing greater things after you leave, how is this gonna work? And in that same discourse, John chapter 14, Jesus gives them even more understanding. If you have your Bibles open, they should be open at this moment to two or three of the greatest verses in the Bible, John 14, 16, 17, and 18. I'm going to walk through this slowly. Jesus said in explanation of verse 12, the greater things verse, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Now that's a powerful statement to start with. Because what Jesus is saying is, I've been here encouraging you. I've been your advocate. I've been standing with you for these three years. And so I'm going to ask the Father to give you another helper. And the wording would be another helper like myself. Two ways to express another in the Greek. One would be another of a different kind. But the way Jesus expresses this is another of the same kind. I'm going to ask my Father, who's going to give you another helper like me? Now, that's how this starts. Then it says that he may be with you forever. I'm going to be leaving you. I will ascend to be with the Father. So you're going to feel alone, but I'm going to ask the Father to give you another helper like me, and he'll never leave you. He'll be with you forever and ever and ever. You'll never worry about him ever being killed, ever being crucified, ever being buried, or anything like that. He'll be with you forever. That's an amazing promise as it unfolds. And then he says in verse 17, by way of explanation, that is the spirit of truth. This is not going to be one that has a body like me. This is going to be a spiritual presence that's going to be with you, the spirit of truth. And he goes on to say, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you, present tense, and will abide with you with you, future tense, and then forever. Literally, he'll be inside of you. He's been with you, but he will be inside of you. He was with you for a time on planet Earth, but now he'll be with you forever and ever from the inside. And then he says this, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Not he will come to you. I will come to you. Now, there's no other conclusion that you can have after reading that verse slowly or that passage slowly than this, and that is that the spirit that would come to dwell inside of every believer would be the spirit of Jesus Christ himself. That means that if you are born again and you have the spirit of God today, Jesus is with you now. That's powerful, isn't it? That's powerful because you never have to be without him. It's powerful because anything he calls you to do, he can do in you and through you. And what Jesus is saying is that in the same way that I have been with you, I'll still be with you. I remember when I was 19 years of age, my my grandfather, who was a a big man in my life, suddenly passed away of a heart attack, came back from college to go to his funeral. My, My granddad was a big, tall guy that uh, had this really deep, booming voice. He was very influential in my life. He lived uh, in a home uh, that had about 10 acres uh, on it, and I was often out at that acreage just outside of town, hanging out with him. And and, um, when he died, I was kind of shocked, obviously. It kind of rocked my world. First person in my family that ever passed away in my memory where I realized what had happened, and so he passed away. I remember at 19, I used to think this, while I was away at college, I used to think, I wonder if Granddad knows what I'm doing right now because I knew he was a, a believer in Christ and he'd be with the Lord forever. I wonder if he knows what I'm doing. I wonder if he knows what I'm saying. Just that, that wondering about whether he could see from heaven what was going on on earth. Just a normal, natural question. I thought about that the other day when I thought about the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Jesus most assuredly knows exactly what's going on in our life, not only because it's God uh, the, uh, the Son, but also because God the Spirit is inside of our lives. He knows everything we think, everything we need. He knows everything we say, every place we go. That can be awesome, but also can, can be intimidating at the same time, right? That's what we have when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of us. So these disciples are remembering what Jesus' promise is and they're praying for the power and the presence of Jesus Christ. Now, if if you're asking for the power and the presence of Jesus Christ in your life, you're not depending on human ability. And if you're not praying for the power and presence of of Jesus Christ in your life, then you are depending on human ability. And if you depend on human ability, you will fail every single time to live the Christian life. Temptation will knock your feet out from under you. Your relationships will go all awry. You'll have all kinds of problems if you're not depending on the power and the presence of Jesus Christ. Now, even though 2,000 years ago, this was the first giving of the Holy Spirit to these disciples, we need the power and the presence of Jesus Christ just as much, if not more so today. And the reason is because what what Jesus says in John 15, 5. Here's what Jesus said in John 15, 5. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. We like to read about that. But that last part of that line is what gets us. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Would you say that with me? For apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's personalize it. Let's say I. Apart from me, I can do nothing. One more time. Apart for me, Jesus says, I can do nothing. You cannot do anything without the power and the presence of Jesus Christ in your life. We know this on a day-to-day, small event kind of thing. We know this when it comes to patience. We need him to help us. We know when it comes to wisdom, we need him to help us. We know when it comes to problem solving, we need him to help us. I remember one of the first times that I realized how badly I needed the power of Jesus in my life was my first experience in dealing with someone that was possessed by demons. This happened to me when I was about 28 years old. I was a young pastor and and I I suddenly realized that one of the classes they did not teach at seminary was how to deal with demon-possessed people. And I was asked to deal with a demon-possessed man who had multiple demons in him and exhibited supernatural strength. In fact, he threatened to kill himself. There were four guys about my size in the room with him. We were trying to restrain him, and he threw us all off of him. And at that moment in my life, I thought out loud, I may need help here. Maybe. I may need help here. And I began to talk to Jesus very plainly. And I began to ask him for his power and his presence. I'm not going to tell the story of that encounter, that four-hour story, that four-hour incident. But at the end, the man was free of demons. And Jesus demonstrated that he is enough for anybody at any time. Amen? Well, you may need help yourself. We may need help here. We may need help with our marriages. We may need help with our relationships. We may need help just following Jesus. We may need help. And that's why the Holy Spirit's been given to us, because we need the help and we need to be praying for the power and the presence of Jesus Christ. Now, let me say this to you as well. We're reading from the book of Acts, and you need to know today that you don't have to ask For the Holy Spirit to be in your life today, if you're already born again, if you're already born again, the Holy Spirit is in your life from that day forward. But this is the book of Acts. Let me say some things to you about the book of Acts that also help us with the interpretation of the book of Acts. It's very important that you know this. Because if you don't know this, you're gonna read through the book of Acts and be confused. Here's some things about the uniqueness of Acts. First of all, Acts is an unfolding story. It's not a book of theology. An unfolding story. We're learning the first pouring out of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. We'll see it again later in the book of Acts. And then a third time to a third different group of people, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So it is a narrative as when the Holy Spirit was first given to different people groups. Secondly, Acts takes place between Christ and the giving of the Holy Spirit. Today, that has already taken place. What you read in the narrative closes at the end of the narrative and you begin to understand a new truth about the subject. Thirdly, Acts focuses on corporate outpouring and not individual indwelling. The corporate outpouring. He poured out the Spirit on all those at Pentecost on all those and two other situations that we'll look at a little later on. So there's a uniqueness in interpreting and understanding the things from the book of Acts. Let me say today, because we have the epistles written by the apostles, we now know the theology of the Holy Spirit is once you are born again, give your life to Jesus Christ, asking to be the Lord and Savior of your life. You are given the Holy Spirit from that day on, and He stays with you forever. Jesus walks inside of you as a believer. You don't pray to get the Holy Spirit today, you pray for the fullness of the Holy Spirit that you may walk in His power and walk in His fullness. That's why the Bible in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Don't fill yourself with with all these other things, but rather be filled with the Spirit. And that's a command that we're given day in and day out. You do pray for that. I need to pray for the fullness of the Holy Spirit every day. Because when I grieve the Spirit, when I quench the Spirit, when I disobey the promptings of the Spirit of God and go off on my own, I realize that's not a good idea. I have to step back and say, God, forgive me. Fill me with your Spirit again so I can walk in your fullness and walk in your power. I am praying for the presence and the power of Jesus on a daily basis, and you must do the same. We should constantly be praying for the fullness of the Spirit in our lives. It's how we depend on God. These folks were also praying about something else. They were praying with one mind and purpose. Verse 14 tells us, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Now I love the these all phrases of Scripture because it was a motley crew. It really was. Peter, the fisherman, first words out of his mouth were almost always wrong. Cut off the ear of servant Malchus at the confrontation in in the garden. Just crazy stuff. Peter did crazy stuff. Jesus was always having to rescue Peter. Later on, the Holy Spirit always had to rescue Peter. It was a motley crew. You can go one by one through these disciples and you'll find a a strange group of people. And and really, the book of Acts, in the verses, we've read names every one of them. And then in addition to that, uh, we, we read about also that they were women in the upper room and Mary, the mother of Jesus and with his brothers who were doubters at one point. So there's a big mix of people in the room. And yet the Bible says they're praying with one mind and one purpose. Now the church from the beginning was a very diverse group of people. It wasn't just a bunch of guys. With men, women, and not just men and women from Jerusalem, they were from all over. In fact, when you get to the book of Acts, you find people from northern Africa and other places that were being appointed to be disciples and deacons, if you will, in the New Testament church. So it was very diverse from day one. It, It basically was one race, and that was the human race of people who were following Jesus Christ. That's what the church is, by the way. It's the human race of people who follow Jesus Christ. So you've got this amazing thing. The church from the beginning involved every believer, every gender, every race, and socioeconomic status in the mission. I need to confirm confirm something today. Gender, whenever I use the word gender, gender, I mean men and women only, that's what I mean. Just so you'll know. But it involved all of us and everybody. Wow, they were praying of one mind and one purpose in spite of the fact that they were incredibly diverse. There's one thing I really love about what God has done here at First Judas and that is He's made us a very diverse group of people. We're intergenerational, we're multi-ethnic. It's amazing. And I love it. I think it represents what the New Testament church ought to look like. It's going to be what heaven looks like and so it's important for us to express that and to see that in the local church as well. But here they were, they were together. The Bible says they were homo thumos. That's a combination Greek word. Homo means one, and themos means temperament. They were of the same temperament. What it doesn't mean is that they were all alike. What it does mean is that they were together in mission. Let me just say this. You and I are never going to agree on the color of the carpet, and the color of the pews. We're never going to agree on walls and colors and things that some people get in fights over in church life. We're never going to depend, uh, agree on everything about a song service, a worship service, or how long the messages last, or how long the services are, all that stuff. We're never going to agree on things like that. But what we can agree on is the mission that Jesus Christ has given us. As a matter of fact, if we don't agree on that, nothing else matters. And that's what they were doing. They didn't have carpet, they didn't have pews. They didn't have a song service. I mean, nobody knew anything except we're following Jesus. He's given us a mission. We're going to reach the world for Christ. And churches that have that kind of mission purpose that are one like that do in fact reach the world for Christ. So here they were beginning to do that. They were together in mission. It's a common theme through the book of Acts. If you look in Acts chapter 1 verse 14, you'll find that they're in one mind in prayer. In chapter 2, verse 1, they're together in one place. That's just prior to Pentecost. Chapter 2, verse 46, after Pentecost, they're with one mind in the temple. Chapter 4, verse 24, they prayed in one accord. Chapter 5, verse 12, they were in one accord on Solomon's porch. Chapter 15, verse 25, they're in one accord in sending Paul and Barnabas. And at this point, I'm resisting the Honda jokes as being the first car of the New Testament church. They're in one accord. I'm not gonna tell that joke. But they were together. They were together, they were of one temperament, of one mind, of one mission, and they were better for it. We are better together. We are bigger together. We're more beautiful and more balanced together. We are bolder together. We're braver together. We must be together. If there's anything that this says to us, it says when you pray and you put down all your personal agendas and you say, not my will, but thy will be done, you are the best expression of the New Testament church we can possibly have on planet Earth because we all have the power of the Holy Spirit resident inside of us as believers. And we are together in one mind and one heart. Be together. My wife and I raised six kids together. It wasn't long until we realized the argument wasn't who's the best parent or what's the best way we work together. But the thing is, are we going to survive together as parents? (laughs) Will our marriage handle the strain? We weren't about all these little externals. We were, we got to be on the same page. We've got to have a plan because these children are dividing in order to conquer us. I tell you, that's what they do. <laughs> our marriage the same way. We have to be together. We have to believe in, in what God has called us to, our mission together as husband and wife, our mission together as a family, and it's no different in the church. When we pray, what we ask God can bring us together. It occurs to me as we hit this text that the word prayer is an important word but also kind of a foreign word to the people in that day and time. The disciples just knew a little bit about prayer because Jesus had been there with them physically for the previous three years and now he was not. But one thing Jesus did teach them was he taught them how to pray. Because they came to him in Matthew 6 and said, Jesus, teach us how to pray just as John taught his disciples had to prayer. Jesus said, pray in this manner. And he gave them what some people know as the Lord's prayer, but it really is the disciples' prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And let me just say, that prayer is an amazing prayer, but it wasn't a prayer that they were just supposed to quote together. It was a manner of prayer. For 30 years, for 30 years, I've prayed prayer based on that prayer every day. There are six things that prayer breaks down to. I'm going to give you all of them real, real quickly. It starts with praise. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We enter His gates with thanksgiving in our hearts. We enter His courts with praise. Spend time praising God for who He is, for what He's done, for His character, for His goodness, for His sovereignty that prepares us for everything else. I have to praise His petition. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you know I pray that prayer about my life every day? Lord, let your kingdom come, your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. I pray that for my wife. I pray that for each of my children. I pray that for the leaders of our church. When someone asks me to pray for them, I pray for them in addition to, Lord, let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, where they are, where they live, just as it is in heaven. It's petition. It's how we pray for organizations. It's how we pray for our community. It's how we pray for ministries that would thrive the gospel and move it forward. It's so important for us to pray in a petition. Then I thirdly pray For provision. Give us this day our daily bread. That's such an important part of praying. God, we we need to depend on you day in and day out. So the provision prayer is, God, provide for us today to do all that you want us to do, all that you need us to do. Because prosperity is having all you need to do the will of God in your life at any given moment. So I pray for provision. And then fourthly, I pray for purification. Purification. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's always important for me to say, God, I know where I've been wrong and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse me. It's also important for me to say, Lord, I determine that I will forgive anyone that sins in some way against me as well. In fact, I actually, in my prayer time, I say, Lord, I'm gonna walk in the spirit of forgiveness today. So that when somebody offends me, at some point in the day, it's inevitable. Somebody's going to offend you. Someone's going to cut you off in traffic. Someone's going to say something about you. Someone's going to hurt you in some way. And when they do that with me, I've already decided before the Lord, I'm going to forgive them in advance. And if you want to offend me, that's fine. But I'm going to already have forgiven you. And I'll walk that out when it happens to me. You ought to be practicing that too. So there is that. That purification, God, I want to walk with you in a way that nothing gets between me and you. And then protection. Protection is lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, God. I'm praying for protection today. Help me recognize temptation around me. Help me recognize when impurity begins to enter my life in the way of thought or actions or whatever it might be. I'm asking you to give me power to walk away from sin. And then after protection, I pray, Again, in a way of praise, for Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Praise, petition, provision, purification, protection, and then praise again. Six P's. Stunning that came from a preacher, isn't it? <laughs> Simple. A way to remember, a track to stay on, a way to keep your prayers in order. Here's what they were doing: they were praying. And I don't think they were praying with the six Ps, but I do think they were remembering the Lord's prayer that he gave them to be the disciples' prayer. And they were learning to pray in such a way where they were discovering prayer together. And beyond those prayers that they were praying, they were praying for Acts 1-8 to unfold, that they could lead every unbeliever to faith in Jesus because that was about to happen, and Jesus told them about it. Then finally, they were praying with great anticipation. I love this, I love this. In verse 8, the Lord says to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. A promise from the Father spoken by Jesus and they knew it was going to happen. They'd already watched all the other promises that the Father had given them happen. The promise of a Messiah, the promise of a resurrection, all those things that happened. So it's not difficult for those men and women in the upper room to say, if Jesus said it, I can count on it. If Jesus said it, I can look for it. If Jesus said it, I can anticipate it. And that prayer of anticipation captured their heart. Man, I wish we could have a revival of anticipation in this place where we would pray and say, God, I fully believe you're gonna carry out your word in my life and I'm gonna live as though I fully believe that. That's what was going on in that upper room. That prayer of anticipation that said, God, we're waiting, show us what we do. There's something that we need to remember. God will move in power when we move in mission. And when we move forward in mission, desperately depending on his power, he's going to come through. But we must ask, because that's the human side of the fullness of the Spirit. That's the human side of divine intervention. And you have not because you ask not, James would say. And James was there. So we're waiting for him to call the play. You knew it would come down to football at the end, didn't you? You knew it would. (laughs) Did you know that there are only two active quarterbacks in the past 10 years that have been given freedom to call all the plays from scrimmage? Jim Kelly and then uh, Manning, what's his first name? Help me here. (laughs) Not Eli, not that one, (laughs) Peyton. And the reason coaches wouldn't give those guys the freedom to call the plays, even though they were quarterbacks, is because they can't see the whole picture. They know the team, they know the opposition, they know a lot of things that are happening at the line of scrimmage, but they don't know the whole picture. They have to look over to the sideline to the head coach who knows more of the picture. He knows how tired and worn out some of his players are. He also knows who's recently been substituted. He knows everything about the teams on both sides. He knows everything about the momentum of the game. So he looks to that coach on the sideline. That coach on the sideline is listening to the offensive coordinator up in the booth who's looking down at the big picture and sees how all the movements on the field are taking place. And because of the, the wisdom of the big picture as well as the wisdom of the intimate knowledge of the players, those two coaches say, call the play to the quarterback. And as much influence as he has, he waits for that call to play before he calls the play. And he may have a favorite play to call, but he can't call the play till the coach says, call the play. Walking in the Spirit is very much like that today. We have the power, we have the ability, we even have the authority to call plays from time to time. But the reality is we need to listen to the fullness of the Spirit, the prompting of the Holy Spirit, the leadership of the Lord, through the Holy Spirit inside of us. And when he says call the play, we go. And when we do that, we win. Every time. Every time. Aren't you glad God did not leave you on planet Earth, save you, but leave you to fend for yourself against sin, against temptation, against multiple decision-making moments, against relationships that might go all messed up, Aren't you glad He didn't leave you alone? And aren't you glad that He gave you the potential to have the same kind of impact on the world that He gave that motley crew up in the upper room? Greater works than these you shall do because I go to the Father. And I'm gonna indwell every single one of you as believers. And when you come together in mission, and when you come together in anticipation, I'm going to move in your life like you could never have possibly imagined. Later on, Paul says he's able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we can ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be glory in the church age without end forever and ever and ever. Amen. Would you bow your head today? And as you bow your head, would you bow your head in anticipation of what God wants to do, but also in dependence of what you need him to do? If you've never given your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, you must at this moment give your life to him. There's no need, there's no reason for you to walk away from here today without Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. It's a simple walk to the front, talking to somebody and saying, help me know how to pray today. Pray with me as I trust him to forgive me of my sin and give me the gift of eternal life. If you're already a believer today, but you're walking in defeat instead of in victory, let me just say to you that you need to depend in a greater way on the power of the Holy Spirit. And maybe today, you're gonna be praying with someone who's waiting with you and who's waiting to pray for you for the fullness of the Spirit in your life. They'll help you know that. Our counselors are coming to stand at the front right now. And I'm asking you to come and stand. Counselors, come on to the front. And I'm gonna ask you as a congregation to stand together with me, if you would. And in these next few moments, I want your rapt attention to the front of the building because it's an opportunity for us to sing and respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. These counselors are here to pray for you. We're gonna sing, would you come right now? Just a moment, just take a moment and decide to follow him fully.